1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Education. I'm Trevor Matea, one of your hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Nicole Lynn about her book, A Curriculum of Fear, Homeland Security in U.S. Public Schools. Nicole, welcome to the show.
2: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: Nicole, I'm wondering if we can begin the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. I'm an assistant professor of social foundations at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and my work is, uh, my research broadly focuses on the intersections of national security, war, and public schooling. And I really arrived at focusing on this nexus um, essentially by looking at public school reform and changes in public school reform across history. And so you'll see the rise of things like JROTC uh, programs and different military programs um, throughout schools. And as someone who is Uh, deeply involved in public school reform as a graduate student, I became curious about what leads teachers to adopt certain public school reform efforts, Um, what are the organizing logics, and what do teachers and administrators hope to get out of those school reform projects. So I've always been interested in public school reform and its relation to sort of the militarization uh, of public schools, and that's really what anchors my research.
1: What brought you to uh, working in schools initially, and, and what sort of experiences, either as a student or as a researcher, have most shaped your views on what education should be?
2: This is a gross generalization, but I always thought that people got into education for one of two reasons. Either they loved school and wanted to dedicate their lives to creating those educational experiences for future generations, or they had a terrible school experience and wanted to change the system. And I sort of fall into that latter category. I was never very interested in schools. I didn't really buy into conventional public schooling. And so I was sort of always on the margins of my educational experience. And for that reason, I was, I was interested in why I felt alienated by school, how other students experience school and what we as adults could do to change uh, the structure of schools to, to better suit the needs of students and their interests taking into consideration historical legacies of things like racism and sexism. So my entry into public school reform really began as, you know, uh, a 12-year-old kid sitting in the back of a history classroom completely disinterested in what the teacher was saying. Um, So that's that's really how I got involved in education.
1: What inspired you to write A Curriculum of Fear?
2: So as I talk about in the book, I was working on a – struggling public school reform in upstate New York. And I came across, uh, I was Googling something completely unrelated to, to what became the book topic. And I stumbled across a high school with a Homeland Security program. And I was interested in uh, learning more about this program for two reasons. One, it was bought as a successful school reform project. And so as someone who was working on a struggling school reform project, I wondered, you know hey, what can I learn from what's going on at this school? And two, I had never heard of a homeland security program in a high school before. And the more I asked around, the more I realized no one had any idea that these kinds of educational programs were happening. And so my initial research project for my dissertation in graduate school had nothing to do with this topic. But for me, the story was compelling or the story was unknown and there are factors that seemed compelling. Because of that, I thought, you know, this is something I really need to investigate and, and learn more about. And so that's really what drove, uh, my interest. It's what drove me to email, uh, Milton High School out of the blue, um, and ask to do some research there. It was, it was really just a curiosity about what is a homeland security program? Um, what does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, how are, how are students interpreting the world through this new national security lens? And how does it improve the school if it's a successful school reform project?
1: What is the Homeland Security program at, at Milton High School?
2: Sure. So it, it's like any other kind of themed program within a school. So you might know of like a STEM or an engineering program. And this means that students, uh, with parental consent, they sign up for the program and it involves um, taking a series of introductory courses, Homeland Security 1 and 2. They can then select Homeland Security themed electives. Um, they go on national security themed field trips to national security hubs, um, whether that's the NSA or a defense contractor facility like Northrop Grumman. Um, they're hearing from guest speakers who are national security experts from the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, the Army Corps of Engineers, and they're also obtaining internships at places like the NSA or uh, other national security hubs. Um, so it's, this, it, it's a real wraparound program that's about specialized classes, electives, field trips, guest speakers, and internships.
1: You do a really good job of placing this program in the history of American public schools and the defense industry and militarization. Can you share a little bit about that history and the relationship between uh, the defense industry and public schools?
2: Yeah, so since the early 1900s, around uh, the rise of World War I and, and eventually World War II, you, you saw two main threads emerging. So there was a thread between military and public schools and then national security and public schools. So in the early 1900s, around 1916, you had uh, the Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps, JROTC, emerge um, as a way of training primarily immigrant students, but also student other students of color... Uh, and this was about um, what's known as disciplining social difference. So, really, um, socializing young people to the norms uh, of, of some sense of Americanness. Um, and, and this, the JROTC, went through ebbs and flows. It became popular at certain moments in time, particularly during the race riots. Uh, General Colin Powell said JROTC uh, was a way of disciplining uh, young at-risk students, is what he called them. Uh, in, in order to keep the race riots at bay. So the military in U.S. public schools has always served this function of disciplining social social difference, of, of regulating young people to the norms and standards uh, of a particular sense of Americanness. And you also see the, the simultaneous rise of the relationship between national security and schools. And this emerges mostly out of the Cold War. So you have this desire to have Uh, you know, engineers, uh, physicists, scientists who could advance nuclear power, but also linguists uh, who could serve as spies, intelligence officers, and, you know, to both uh, fortify the military as well as the intelligence arms uh, of the U.S. defense, we needed to really change what was going on in public schools around these missions and in both In both of those threads, there was an orientation around race. Who were these programs for, and what were their their purposes uh, in terms of of intervening uh, in terms of racial difference?
1: What sort of ethical considerations did you need to make before conducting this this research?
2: Yeah, so I will say that when I first contacted Milton High School, I was primarily focused on the Homeland Security Program as a school reform effort. I had mentioned earlier my experiences in upstate New York on a struggling school reform project, and that really shaped how I was thinking about what was going on at Milton. Of course, I I also had these concerns about militarization and securitization, so it's not not as though those things were absent. But when I first contacted Milton, I I emphasized um, my own work in upstate New York and how it related to their Homeland Security Program, and I was really interested in learning more about the successes of the program, but also how the Homeland Security theme was shaping curricula and culture at the school. And my email was met with enthusiasm. The teachers and administrators welcomed me to the school. They were proud of it, um, and they wanted to show off their, their hard work uh, of all of the work that went into developing and installing this program. And so the time passed. I was observing classes going on field trips and things like that and over time the more pronounced my concerns became as students were articulating these deep fears of a terrorist attack in their school or in their own community and the the more problematic uh, i found the school the, the the more ethical conundrums there were to to really negotiate so the question then became, do I reveal my, my intellectual politics? Do I reveal my concerns about militarization and securitization? And I'll say that at some moments I disclosed my concerns and at others I, I concealed them. Um, so it depended on my relationship with participants. Um, of course, all participants were consented according to, you know, inter, uh, institutional review board policies. So they knew, um, that I was conducting research in the scope of that research. Um, but I didn't always raise my concerns. Um, it, it depended on my relationship. Um, so, for example, one teacher said that, two teachers actually, said that they would not enroll their own children in the Homeland Security Program because they didn't want to expose their children to violence and they didn't want their children to always be afraid of a terrorist attack. So that was an opportunity for me to say, you know, I'm also, you know, hearing about, um, some of these fears and exposure to violence from young people themselves, you know, what can the school do to address some of these issues? So, the, the ethical issues really were at what points do I explain my concerns about the program and do I have a responsibility to reveal those concerns and at what point um, of the research project? And so that's something I negotiated differently depending on research participants. Um, I will say that. At the end of the research study, as a part of the agreement of my conducting research, I did actually produce a 35, they wanted a what they called a data-rich um, report. So I produced a 35-page report that included, you know, my own personal findings, my own interpretation uh, of my time at the school, as well as questions that I raised regarding the role of fear in the school. So um, all of that to say is that... Um, uh, some participants knew of my concerns; others did not, and so that's that's really the main ethical consideration: is what responsibility do we have research, uh, as do we have as researchers to reveal all of our intellectual politics or critiques, and at what point uh, do we do that? And so I made those decisions um, based on my relationship with participants, but also with a sense of um, what was exposing participants to risk or what would not be um, a certain risk and what ethical responsibilities I had to each of my participants.
1: Once the way you were going to present the story of the school became a little bit clearer, how was that received by the staff?
2: Sure. So I would say that I didn't broadly broadcast my concerns. So students particularly didn't have a chance to come in uh, on my critiques of the program, um, one way I, I revealed my concerns about the program was there was a newspaper article that really critiqued the program for militarization, for this claim of indoctrination, and I and I really used that as leverage. And so for me, the the best that I can do, um, in terms of uh, you know this, this tension between uh, the school thinking, in their words, that they were getting some really good PR and what they might read as not really good PR is, I guess, two things. One, is I've protected the anonymity uh, of the school. But two, I've, I've done my best to highlight in the book the complications and the contradictions and the contributions of the program. So if, if you read the book carefully, it's not this incisive, one-sided critique of the program. It's really trying to grapple with how did we arrive at, at a moment in time when you have well-intended teachers and brilliant students um, who think that the, the best way to improve this school is through this Homeland Security program? So as I write in the book, it's, it's not an indictment of the school or of the teachers, but really a question about the U.S. public and where we are um, as a nation in terms of valuing national security and privileging these military solutions to social problems. So if I were talking to other ethnographers in the room, the question would really be how do we represent what it is we observed and heard from students and how do we take those interpretations? and of course, with some of our own political and intellectual leanings uh, represent what was going on and and for me, of course, I have the social justice lens. and so, Part of telling the story and telling the story the best way I can from my own perspective and positionality is also to do so in a way that leads to social change. And so that that's something ethnographers have to figure out is what, what are your political commitments or your personal commitments to the project? And, you know, if, if you're less politically committed, then maybe then maybe you hold back a little bit. Um, but for, for me, the idea was how do I best represent what my research revealed uh, and my interpretations uh, of that research.
1: I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what Milton High School was like prior to, to starting this Homeland Security program and how the program came to be.
2: So Milton High School has always had a somewhat notorious reputation, and it became more pronounced as the demographics of the school uh, began shifting. So Milton opened in the early 70s, and it was serving primarily working-class white youth. And you had the the ongoing gentrification of Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, Maryland, which led to what some scholars have called the suburbanization of poverty, so pushing poor and working class people of color out of cities and into their surrounding towns, which was the case of Milton. So you had in the Milton community, three public housing units. um, You had a growing number of of, uh, families of color who moved to the area. So with this demographic, with this um, changing racial demographic, the reputation of Milton, uh, you know, became even more notorious. And so you had a principal and teachers who were were thinking really uh, hard about how do we improve not only the reputation, but also the academic achievement of our young people in this school. And during this time, of course, this is a post-September 11th context, and the national security industry is, you know, mushrooming across the United States, particularly in the Mid-Atlantic region, which is where Milton High School is located. So you had teachers who are thinking about, well, how do we improve the school for our students, for the changing demographic of our students, um, and how do we take advantage of the resources that are available in the community? And so the Homeland Security Program was really born out of this idea that if you can get a topic that young people are interested in, if you can gather community resources, whether that's expertise, financial resources, uh, or what have you, um, then you can develop and build a sustainable program that will engage students in a way that is what they called relevant and rigorous. so the the project was was an attempt to respond to the needs of the community um, through what the community had to offer. and the, they were defining the community as, as these business partners.
1: This change at Milton was occurring around the same time as similar programs. We're starting up in more affluent uh, suburban areas there. And so can you talk a little bit about the differences between the Homeland Security Program and some special programs in neighboring communities?
2: Yeah. So when I was at the school, there was a – when I was at Milton, there was a school that was just down the road in a whiter, wealthier part of the county. And one of the, the program coordinators said to me, You know, we here have a military-focused program because our students are blue-collar kids, and blue-collar kids get blue-collar jobs. And that was really the orientation of the school. But this school down the road, the the program coordinator explained, is more affluent. So this program will have uh, an engineering focus. So even though we're seeing homeland security programs in different types of neighborhoods and communities, um, poor, wealthy, um, of color, white, and um, the goals of each of their programs and what they're organized around are completely different. So Milton was had a military focus, and this more affluent school was developing an engineering-focused homeland security program.
1: In the book, you talk about th- this purpose of school. And for a lot of people on the staff at Milton, it seemed like it, uh, the, the point was to help kids uh, get jobs. Can you talk a little bit more about uh maybe how you see the purpose of school and, and what we're trying to, to do for kids and how the school could have been structured differently to meet other aims?
2: Sure. So for me, the purpose of education is really oriented around developing uh, or enhancing critical thinking skills for young people to participate in a, in a liberal democracy or per- participatory democracy. So school then in that sense is, you know, how to make sense of the world, find your way in it, you know, stage arguments to change the social problems in your own community. And so for Milton teachers, so that has a very, that's a very different understanding of the purpose of education Mm -hmm. than something simply as job training, although I'm not, you know, that's not uh, irrelevant um, to, to what I think is the purpose of education. But for Milton teachers, there was this laser focus on job training as a purpose of education without really attention to critical thinking, although they would say critical thinking skills was a part of the program to think critically about national security risks, but not to critically think about the world in which young people live, to critically think about the things that actually make them insecure, like criminalization or gentrification or poverty and things like that. So for me, it's really about Uh, critical education to solve the pressing social problems uh, that young people encounter in their daily lives. Um, So for me, thinking about this program is is about how they've taken or how they've advanced these liberal precepts around things like um, engagement, relevance, and rigor. So these are are things that are valued by educators and, and grounded them in national security. So for them, engagement with, uh, student engagement in the classroom was possible because of the thrilling national security uh, theme. Mm-hmm. And so the, po- the question I pose back to them is, is that the only way of engaging young people? Is the only way of making education relevant to young people is through this national security lens? Aren't there other ways of making schools relevant to young people? Are there other ways of making education rigorous? Are there other ways of developing critical thinking skills, writing, math, Uh, skills that we want young people to have when they graduate from high school. So for me, teachers had all of these progressive ideas about the purpose of education, but then when it's filtered through this national security lens, it becomes a little bit distorted in some ways, where then things become focused on job training or instilling a sense of fear or getting young people to police other people of color in their own communities and so the question then becomes how did we sort of lose our way if we began with these uh, liberal notions of, of education or more progressive notions of education but ended up with something that is deeply troubling?
1: How, how did uh, the, the staff think about that? Did they see that they really had other choices?
2: Sure. So I think it's it's sort of a little bit complicated or contradictory So when I was ask teachers, you know, why this Homeland Security theme? You could have chosen a number of different themes for your school, and, and you decided on Homeland Security. And by and large, and I write this in the book, teachers just laughed at me. Um, the, the question back to me was, while they were laughing, was, well, what else would we have chosen? This is such an obvious choice, Homeland Security. We're located in the middle of the, the national security industry. We have all of these willing partners. Kids are excited about national security. There's you know, thousands of national security jobs that are popping up. How could we? How could we choose anything else but national security? Now, the irony and the contradiction here is that there are there were you know uh, a dozen other schools within this district who are going through similar restructuring processes, who are going out to business leaders in the same community to develop uh, programs around specific themes. So you had. Nearby schools developing things around global leadership or engineering, um, or citizenship. And so, and consulting with the same national security partners to create a, a program around a different kind of theme. So part of this is about, well, how, how did it become that national security was the only possible outcome teachers could see? And why was it this form of national security? Because, young people wanted to focus on security. There are all kinds of ways young people are made insecure that could lead to uh, the development of math skills or science skills um, or, or writing uh, and reading skills, um, but it was, but it was this national security scheme. So yes, it came out of both pressure from the national security industry, but also the sense that if we're responsible educators, we would take advantage of these resources and we would take advantage of this Uh, sort of thrilling national security theme. And so teachers sort of walked around with this idea that the program was doing good for the community. It was doing good things for for students and for their families. That's a very hard logic to to contest um, in, in any meaningful kind of way.
1: When we were talking about education reform and your your interests more broadly, you were talking about the militarization of schools and how you saw that as being part of, of education reform. And I think a lot of people who think about education reform today might think about standardized tests, charter schools, things like that. And I was wondering if, if you see a relationship between those two types of ed reform.
2: Sure. I mean, you have... Essentially, I, well, I guess it depends on what your idea of education reform is, but there are ways of of changing schools with the the idea that you're going to improve the school that involves some kind of policy changes, or or funding changes, or, or assessment changes, um, you know, through which somehow you're going to you're going to. Change the lives of, as, as the teachers that I work with, through these curricular changes, we're going to change the lives of, you know, however many tens of thousands of young people funnel in and out of Milton and other high schools in the district. Um, so I think that they're related in, in a number of different ways. A lot of times this is related to the corporatization of public schools, so um, the, the privatization of education, getting corporate control over schools. You see this with the, the rise of charter schools. Um, and other privatized uh, educational reform measures, the the closing of schools, um, those are certainly all related to Milton's own story um, because you have the rise of public-private partnerships. You have the rise of um, private national security companies getting a say in kind of education young people um, receive, um, which is a step away from community-controlled schools, um, which is uh, – has to, is also connected to things like mayoral, mayoral control um, of schools, um, school boards that are no longer elected um, by communities but are appointed by mayors. Um, so there are a number of different ways that, that the installation of a Homeland Security Program is connected to broader school restructuring efforts that are linked to the corporatization or privatization of schools that are linked to different uh, military school reform projects um, which of course are also connected to school discipline policies, um, which are also connected to this drive to increase standardized test scores. Which was, part, you know, part of Milton's um, justification for this program is we need to improve graduation rates, um, and associated with that is improve standardized test scores um, to get a higher ranking, uh, higher rating as a as a school. So all of these things sort of work. Um, together, all of these different kinds of policy changes or restructuring programs work together, and undergirding all of these different uh, programs, so you could have standardized testing. Um, you know, you could have the rise of charter schools. You could have the rise of national security programs. But undergirding that is, is of course, uh, a series of logics that say, um, you know, choice and competition is the way to improve public education. That young people need discipline, um, whether that's through strict zero tolerance policies or military training or national security training. So, so for me, the the thing that sort of connects is the web that connects all of these different school reform projects are the logics and and the the what people have to get to gain out of these kinds of school reform projects, whether that's reputation. of course, profit um, and, and things like that. So it's really the logic that, that say, this is how we improve schools um, for this particular subset of the population.
1: You mentioned earlier a conversation that you had with a teacher at Milton in which uh, she or he said that um, they would have second thoughts about sending their own children there because they wouldn't want them to have irrational fears about terrorism. And uh, you know, I think one way you can measure a school is, uh, are the teachers willing to send their own children there? Is everyone fully committed to what the school is doing? I was wondering um, if, if you could say a little bit more about how you think the teachers perceive that or how they deal with that, that tension between this is their job, but uh, maybe it's not something they'd want to bring their own families into.
2: So I write a little bit about this in the book that for me these moments where teachers are questioning if they would send their own children to this school, to me they're they're little rupture points of uh, maybe this is an opening for them to see, maybe this program isn't such a good idea because of these deeply troubling effects. but teachers were able to, to use other logics to say, well, maybe it's not good for my kids, mm-hmm. but it's good for these kids. And so what I thought was a, a way to, to have a conversation about what I thought was deeply concerning became an affirmation that the school was necessary. And so, sure, a program coordinator or a longtime teacher would never send his white middle class children to the school But, you know, for a kid who's, you know, uh, a kid of color who's growing up in a poor family who might not have many job options following graduation, this seems great. It's a way of engaging a kid who might otherwise drop out of high school. It's a kid who might have a career opportunity um, he might not otherwise have. um, And he might improve uh, his test scores or his grades. And so that was one way that teachers were able to make sense of, of of that hesitation at enrolling their own their own children in the program was it's not good for my kids but but I think it's good for, for these kids.
1: I'm wondering when we disagree about things like that, are we really disagreeing about what we should value in schools? like uh you were talking earlier about you you think schools should be helping students to become more critical thinkers and preparing them to be active participants in democracy. Do you think when when you find someone who likes a different school model than you do, you're really disagreeing about what school should be doing in the first place?
2: So I think it's I think it's two things. Yes. I think it's absolutely a a, dis, a disagreement over What schools are for I open um, one of my undergrad classes I open every the first day of every semester is this question of what is the purpose of education and I ask students to respond to that prompt what is the purpose of education and I and students have a range of ideas about what the purpose of education is and who education is for and for what ends and so I think that is that is of course a, a primary source Uh, of, of disagreement, especially over school restructuring and school reform. So if people are contesting the national security, homeland security program, it could be because many people see job training as the primary purpose of education. On the other hand, I also think there are disagreements about the role of national security in the military in relation to fighting the global war on terror. So this this is also a, sort of a political difference in terms of is is violence political violence or military uh, incursions the way to solve pressing social problems is this the way to fight terrorism is this the way to fight extremism and so for young people at Milton High School it was sort of taken for granted that the military was a noble institution that that war would be glorified that young people's dreams should be anchored in the sense of becoming a hero, a warrior. Um, and so there are other things that um, I think, in particular for the, for the Homeland Security Program, if you're disagreeing with the program or agreeing with the program, it also has to do with um, your, your sense of or your understanding of the role of the military and the role of the national security state in schools, but also in in everyday life.
1: Do you find in, in your conversations with students or, or other people you know, when you're asking them what do they think the purpose of public education is, do you find that, that they are persuadable that their beliefs or their assumptions are, are deeply held? Those of us who have strong opinions uh, and think about this a lot, would we be... Um, would it be more advantageous for us to to try and engage people on that level rather than uh, arguing about what standards should be or whether we should open more or different charter schools and things like that?
2: Well, I don't know if I I, I don't know. I'd be curious about that. If arguing over the purpose of education is is more benefic- beneficial, I think in, with things like charter schools, that has to do with these neoliberal ideas around school choice, that that competition drives up performance and efficiency, and, and so choice choice will always be the best answer to improve schools. Um, so I think that that's actually not a question about the purpose of education, but of how to improve education. Most people are shocked when they hear of this Homeland Security program, and the few people who I know who resist the idea will ask, well, what's the alternative? We can't dismantle these programs unless we have another alternative. And people say this around school discipline. They say it around prisons. They say it around military training programs in high school. In the absence of any other alternatives, uh, alternatives, how could we say no to this type of programming? Um, and so for me, it's, it's a question of, well, how did these become the alternative? And we know that we can make public schools work for all students if they're, if they're properly funded, if they're well-supported, if they're community-controlled. And so the, the debates, I think, around national security schooling will be less about the purpose of education and more about, if not this, then what else? And how do we build those alternatives? So we crowd out the possibility that we need the military or the national security in schools as a way to engage young people, that we can we can show and develop alternatives um, that that render these kinds of programs uh, unnecessary, useless, superfluous.
1: If you had to project five or ten or twenty years into the future, do you think uh, there might be more programs like the one at Milton High School? Uh, do you think the program at Milton High School will still be there?
2: So I think these kinds of programs will persist um, for a few years, my sense is that, uh, and, and what my new research is showing, is that the relationship between national, the national security industry and public schools is intensifying, but the form that relationship is taking is changing or has always been changing. And so you might not have something like a, a formalized Homeland Security program in a public high school, although I see those programs persisting for a number of years, we also have to be aware that there are other ways the national security industry is infiltrating um public public schools and unless we do something to sort of support those those practices. So the the, the long term outlook for me is you know, about being aware and involved in public school reform so we know uh what's happening and we can contest or resist um these intensifying uh institutional arrangements between national security and public schools.
1: So if readers could just have one takeaway from reading your book, what what would you hope it would be?
2: The main takeaway would be this singular idea that there is this relationship between the global war on terror and public schools, that the global war on terror is remaking and and reshaping public education in the United States But public schools are also contributing to and advancing the global war on terror. And this could be through formalized Homeland Security programs. It could be through engineering programs that are funded by defense contractors or the Department of Homeland Security um, that uh, there could be uh, what NSA calls spy camps for kids that, that the NSA administers to get young people thinking about surveillance and spying at at an early age. So for me, that's that's really the main takeaway, is that there's this intensified relationship between public schools and the global war on terror, and the global war on terror is is really restructuring curricula and culture across the United States.
1: Well, uh, Nicole, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just wanted to ask you a couple of more questions. First, what are three other books that you might recommend to our listeners if they've enjoyed our conversation today?
2: Sure. So I would recommend uh, Gina Perez's Citizen, Student, Soldier, Latino Youth, Chair, to See in the American Dream. For, uh, for people who are interested in the military and public education, um, I would also recommend Joe Masco's The Theater of Operations that really looks at the development of national security from the Cold War through the global war on terror. And One last book, which might be a selfish recommendation um, that I've just started reading the book, it's an edited volume called Policing the Planet, Why the Policing Crisis Led to Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. um, as a a way to think about um, policing and public education, not just the military and public education. Um,
1: and, And finally, what are you working on now?
2: So I'm working on a new project that looks at what's called countering violent extremism CVE programs um, that are in public schools and other youth spaces. And so countering violent extremism is, is a way to prevent primarily um, Arab American and Muslim youth um, from joining um, extremist groups like ISIS and thinking about the criminalization, surveillance, uh, and stigmatization that comes with these types of programs and the role teachers play in, in spying on or surveying or reporting young people. Um, so this is, again, another look at how national security is, is using and relying on public education for its work. But hopefully I'll be, I'll be um, publishing some policy briefs that are related to this new project um, within the next couple of months. So that's the, probably the best way to follow uh, my work.
1: We look forward to reading your next piece. So I want to thank you for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Great. Thank you so much.